If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. On this episode, we have Oren Greenberg, founder of Curve, which is a modular growth marketing consultancy. Oren has been instrumental in the growth of a number of client brands, has been featured in the Telegraph, Social Media Examiner, and the HubSpot blog. Oren, it's good to have you on Confessions of a Marketer. Welcome. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you share your background and give me the details on Curve? Sure. So I guess I grew through mostly a VC-backed tech startup scene in London, working with probably some notorious big names. The UK is not known for producing unicorns, but um, I had a fair share of dealings with a few of them. Yeah, And I did that for quite a fair few years. And then um, five, six years ago, the back of one of them, I got a great result um, on organic search. I was ranking for one of the most competitive sectors in the UK, which was payday loans. And this was for a business called Wonga the equivalent kind of unicorn business um, yeah. that no longer exists due to legislative changes. The UK didn't quite take the payday loans as the US did. So that kind of grew and then fizzled. And then I effectively built my own independent agency off the back of that, did that for a few years. And then I kind of migrated more into a, a hybrid model where I'm now a consultant. So I do work for FTSE, 100 companies like Canon, Investec Bank. At the moment, I'm supporting the Novo. And then I also work with quite a few scale-ups and funded businesses. I also work with earlier stage businesses more in the advisory capacity yeah. and ad hoc consultancy. And then I also have a, an execution arm because the biggest challenge is you give the strategy and you give the advice and then um, it falls through. Nothing happens, right? <laughs> well, well, it happens. Actually, it, happen, it always happens, yeah. but it always happens most of the time poorly. You just like you don't effectively i think there's two key biases i think the first one is people give specialist work to generalists right and because they're smart and they're hungry and they're industrious so surely they can make it happen and the reality is without being upskilled or trained on a specialist channel or tool you've set them up to fail yeah and when they're doing nine different things at the same time the probability of them cracking a main challenge it's unlikely it's very hard so i think that's the first common pattern i see and then the second is every marketer, so it's kind of funny saying this about myself and other marketers, is um, everyone has a bias because of how they develop their experience. So some have developed their skills through search marketing, or some through paid social, or some through the coding, or you know, some of them are really strong at SQL, and some of them are really great at PR, and, and some of them are really great content marketeers. And each one of these is a different flavor 
of marketing. And when you're in the marketing world, you understand how fragmented and specialist it is. But when you're a different C-suite exec, a COO, a CPO, a CDO, a CEO, you don't understand the nuance and the, com- and the difference in the variability and variation. If you put your marketing budget into the wrong marketer, you're not going to get the right result. So what I found is I just rather work with more, frankly, expensive, but specialist experts who only do that one thing day in, day out, rather than have lots of generalists who are trying to hack it and make it work. And usually that, that tends to flop. So that's where my model evolved into a hybrid of finding select delivery partners and the kind of balancing uh, consultancy and, and the tactical execution. So you kind of put together an engagement with a client and assemble the team. Yeah, actually, I have um, have multiple models. So some of them, I'm just a pure non-exec and um, board level. Yeah. So just pure strategy. On others, I'm a hybrid. So I'm either acting as a, a tactical CMO. Actually, finding now is people, they really want to nurture their in-house marketing team. And what they're really looking for is an experienced hand to guide. So people are more kind of, they're really keen on in-housing and trying to own marketing internally. And I think it's evolving towards more of a hybrid model where like some competences are in-house and some specializations are outsourced. And it is very variable from business to business as to what their preference is because of the way the DNA of the business, how it's been set up, their philosophy about marketing. I mean, all honesty, how many bad experiences they've had. Because almost every conversation I have with a new prospect is, I've had a bad experience. I'm traumatized. I'm very careful about my vendor selection. And some of them are like excessively rigorous with their due diligence and they suffocate um, the process from happening because they've had such bad scarring because they don't understand marketing. They come from a finance background or product background. And it's all very mysterious and very non-measurable and very confusing and overwhelming with so many different um, you know, 8,000 technology providers in MarTech. It's like, who do you go with? Right. So um, it's very interesting trying to understand and diagnose why things go wrong, where they go wrong, and how that varies from, from business to business. So I tend to find myself like an amorphous puzzle shape that adapts to the different circumstances of that client and that business. So I don't really have a rigid model as a result. So what has 2020 been like for you with COVID-19? How has that affected your business and your clients? Yeah, I guess because I'm so um, diverse, it's affected me in both positive and negative ways. So some of my investments, some of the businesses I've invested in, they've seen sort of 80, 90% revenue drop. Yeah. And that's very, that's terrible. Um, on the flip side, I've seen more businesses, like personally, I've had an increase in people approaching me for support because a lot of businesses have gone digital. And because obviously, the, if you're a travel or restaurant, or everything's going from offline to online. And even though there's been a decrease in spend on online, more businesses are operating online. And therefore, I think there's um, with the overwhelm of uncertainty, there's also a need to, to get reassurance and validation and risk mitigation that they're doing the right things. So I've actually seen an increase in, in work for myself I have seen, I did have a few opportunities that fizzled out that were offline related. I think because I'm specifically, my background is very much on tech businesses. My core background is mostly um, SaaS businesses, MarTech businesses, e-commerce, and B2C mobile apps, right? And marketplaces. So like those five areas, which are all tech businesses really, and in terms of their essence and core is technology, that's a USP, then 
there's been an increase because obviously it's, it's you know those models are very lean and very cost effective and very scalable and they really work well with digital right. marketing channels and I'm a digital marketing expert so it kind of works quite well um, with my propensity and my skills and I think other marketeers like some marketeers I speak to all of their clients were like travel clients and then they've really taken a massive hit but for me I guess I believe in digital as a future and, and kind of I believe in remote working and I believe that people don't want to do a two-hour commute into work every day. Yeah. I think people have kids and they want to be at a home. I think people don't want to endure ridiculous rent and small shoebox living spaces in big cities. They want to live in a more rural area where they have a garden and they have higher life quality. And um, So when you take that into account to what people want, what people need, you can kind of project where business is going to go. And I've kind of bet my money on it, I suppose, in many ways in my specialization and client selection as to where the future is. And, and that's why I'm taking a gamble. It is kind of interesting that over the last 10 years or so, there's been this trend, certainly in the U.S., of startups, instead of being in the suburbs, being in urban centers. Here in Boston area, there's been a big trend in that direction. When I started in my career uh, in technology in the Boston area, everything was out in the suburbs. Now everything is in town. And, and my feeling is that you're probably right, that companies will probably locate out in the sticks more or just not have an office at all. Hmm. And we were already starting to see that in the UK where businesses were starting to, like other hubs outside of um, London started to evolve. And it's quite interesting, like if it's Oxford or Cambridge or other cities and towns. But then I think now with COVID, it's very clear that people are going to move to a hybrid home office solution. But then what's going to be interesting is this third option of the co-working spaces. And what does that look like? Does that look like the business owning multiple locations where they people can come and go in their smaller hubs rather than one central location? Or is that going to be that people just enable their employees to work or subcontractors or whatever it is that they have on their books um, to work through co-working spaces and they buy them a WeWork membership? or whatever that, that co-working space in that local vicinity is. Yeah. And I think there's definitely going to be a, some sort of shift, especially for digital workers and knowledge workers, because I think now people, under, I mean, almost every single person I speak to, I say, how is this affecting you? Everyone categorically say they're more efficient. Yeah. But what is clear is all the people who need and want to be more social, they're taking a hit. They feel like they're losing connection or they're, it's, you know, the emotional um, they don't have as much time with their friends. I think it's an age thing, and I think it's a life stage thing. I think when you're older, you want to do your nine to five. You want to come in. You want to focus. You want to deliver, and you want to go home to your parents, your kids, and your family. Yeah. But when you're younger, you want to hang out with your friends at work and go for a beer and then go for a pool and go for a club, and it's more fun, more engaging. And I think there's a different needs for different people, different stages of their career, and I think that's where the, some of the complexity comes from. Yeah, I think it'll be a hybrid. I think that a lot of large companies will allow their employees to work at home a certain amount of time and come into the office a couple of days a week, something like that. It's just going to be interesting to see the lasting effect of COVID-19 on people and the way they work and the way they socialize and the way they respond to marketing, right? It's changed the world in a very profound way. Yeah, completely. So let's get into the meat of the discussion. How are you using video with your clients these days? And are you seeing this affect conversions? Yeah, so 
I think video has multiple benefits compared to other mediums. Because it's multi-sensory, I think it expresses personality and emotional connection in a better way, and it's more creative. I think the cons are it's a much more complex medium to master because you have to film it, you have to plan it, you have to edit it, then you've got the sound quality, color correction, subtitles, and yeah. different adaptations with different channels. So there's a cost to it. Um, so I think there's a few different ways for where I see video performing and where it can continue to perform. I think if you look at um, Pipeform, they have a new product called VideoAsk, and you can see it's kind of like chatbot with pre-canned videos. And I reckon that, in terms of helping on-site conversion, will become more popular. Yeah. And then I think you have um, companies like Vidyard who have integrations into HubSpot, and Vidyard enables you to kind of track and measure the performance of your marketing content, as well as doing lead generation using video. Um, I specifically had this instance with a client that they were doing a code lead gen, the sales exec, and then I said, I think why don't you focus on more quality, less quantity. Yeah. And why didn't you do video as cut through? And then um, he did, started doing it, and he got a four hundred and thirty percent increase wow. on conversion to to SQL sales qualified lead. And that all sounds great in theory, but in reality, there's a heavy price to pay because he needs to research them. He has to find a hook, and then he needs to record the video, uh, practice it, edit it, redo it. Then he has to send it off to them. And then only like two or three people actually open the videos because most people don't even open the email, right? So like 50% open rate or like 30% open rate. And then only a few open and then only a few will respond. But the responses and quality responses he gets obviously a lot higher. Right. So problem, I guess the key here is how do you do this at scale and dynamically and do this smarter, right? And I think that's where the magic really is. And if you think about how, I think it really comes down to personalization. It's like, what is the hook that you're using that makes your email stand out. And I think it also depends on like how big your total addressable market is, because the bigger your total addressable market is, the more you can do broad firing with lower quality because it's a numbers game. Yeah. But if you have a very small total addressable market, 2,000, 5,000 businesses, you can't really afford to miss that opportunity with that first bad impression and sending a generic email. Yeah. So yeah, so, so I've seen video work quite well on, on the lead gen. I think video is, is quite key for um, personal brand building on social. Like, you, know, you can really see it taking off on LinkedIn. And I think you can see it a lot in terms of a lot of uh, course providers, agency owners, consultants, digital marketing platforms, a lot of them using video and unpaid social to generate the leads. So I think video can, it's a multifaceted asset. I think at the end of the day, the focus shouldn't be on the medium which is a video per se, the, it should be on the message and the creative. Sure. It should be, how does a creative stand out? And I think people aren't really investing enough time and energy to be to stand out relative to the noise in their space when they're producing video. And it takes more time to invest and do that. I, I think there's a really simple process to do this that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And effectively, you come up with a list of ideas and then you push yourself to come up with some more ideas and you push yourself to come up with some more ideas and you end up with like 20 or 30 ideas. Then you pick the top one or two and you go with that. Most people don't go through the process. They kind of go two, three ideas and then they pick the best one. What happens is they don't, you have to have this natural selection with a creative process to find the best idea and cutting through. But also you can't go all in with one idea. And this is another mistake. I think it's better to go in with three or four ideas and try them out and, and compare and contrast and then double down on the best performer rather than go all in on just one big creative idea. And I don't think we live in, in an age that's necessary to do anymore.
Because if you only had a limited amount of TV channels and you had a TV spot and you had to prepare that six months in advance, then you can see why people have to go all in. But nowadays, if you want to run a Facebook ad campaign for two days and pause it and see how your video performs, or send out an email cadence to 100 contacts and then different video to another 100 to see how that performs, you can do that. So I'm really a believer in, in those two practical tips to help and increase performance as a result. Yeah. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. In video, there are certainly ways to personalize a video. And I know when I was talking to your folks and you about having you come on podcast, I got a couple of videos and they were kind of cool, personalized videos. So what role does personalization play in video? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it just allows the prospect the insight that this is more tailored for them. It helps them save time from having to take the cognitive load to sift through, realizing if this is generic and is it relevant for them. So effectively, by increasing the relevance, it reduces cognitive load and increases the performance. Right. Yeah, I think there's also, it's how is personalization done? Because this personalization is like high first name. And that was like the original first variation of personalization in email marketing, right? Yeah. And that was like, wow, amazing. It's no longer high there. It's now high first name. So it's shocking that I still get high there emails, which I don't even scroll down the first sentence. So like I see hi there and it's already goes, it gets deleted, you know? Although so, again, the personalization can get a little creepy when it's in the subject line and embedded somewhere in the copy of the email too. It just gets a little bit uh, creepy, I think. It needs to be relevant. Yeah. The problem is the personalization now is done for the sake of personalization. Exactly. Rather yeah. than done, look, I recognize the pain that you have and I have a relevant solution or I took the effort to research you and I saw the blog post that you posted or the tweet that you did. And then like, all you need to do is just like reference a piece of content that that person did, you know, engage in social once or twice and then send them the cold outbound message and you'll have a much better performance. Like you don't need to, it's not rocket science. You just, you want to build a relationship. That's what people want. People just don't want to be treated like an object. And as long as you just assume, how is it for me as a receiving end to receive this email? Right. And the problem is people don't have the um, they don't have the time and they have a little performance pressure to achieve specific KPIs in short time frames. Yeah. And that creates stress. And the stress is stifles creativity. But the only way to get exceptional results or performance is through creativity. Like you have to be differentiated. And differentiation has to come from the context, the competitive context, which means you need to research it and understand the competitive context. Then you go to find a hook. And that hook, it can come serendipitously through, through like, well, I just uncovered a hook. Like I did this the other day. I found a something that no one's ever done before and I researched it and it ended up in being a piece of content that I produced. And when I asked people, like really senior execs about the quality of the piece of content, they give it a nine out of 10. And it's like, you know, they're like, how do you come up with this piece of content? It's like really remarkable. And I said, you know what, through, through sheer luck, I was looking, the intent was to create amazing content, but I didn't know I was going to create this amazing piece of content. And it's like really took a lot of energy and time to produce it as well. Yeah. And 
sometimes it's serendipity, but you have to have the intent. The intent what needs to be, I want to be producing better results. I need to be improving my performance. I need to be finding more creative ways to get a more effective result. And this sounds surprising, but a lot of people don't have that mindset. They have a mindset of what's the minimum I can do, or like, how do I just do this so I can get it off my plate? But at the end of the day, like you don't have any prospects as a agency, as a in-house career progression, as a consultant, as a contractor, if you're not delivering value. And the only people think people care about when they give you an assignment in any format is what's the outcome. Yeah. Like they don't care what your day rate is or what your hourly rate is or how hard you work or who you know or what you read. No one cares. They only care about, can you do this? Okay. You said you can. Great. Go and do it. Great. Did it work? No. Okay. Then, you know, try harder. <laughs> and like people just right. want results and they really pay for the results. And that's at the end of the day, it's a very hard truth. And a lot of people don't like it because they can't control the outcome. So if the mindset is you got to align to the outcome and you got to double down on learning, talking to people and experimenting. And those are the only three things that you have in your arsenal to try and achieve a result. So you just got to go and do that. Yeah. We talked briefly, uh, kind of gave me a kind of a case study earlier, but do you have an in-depth case study you could share? I have an in-depth case study for the overall project for that business because nowadays I don't I don't really manage an individual channel. I bring in five to ten experts. Like I have a Google Ads specialist, the Google Analytics specialist, the Facebook paid ad specialist. Yeah. And that's where I'm different. I don't believe in lots of generalists. So what we did is we built a whole infrastructure for this business from the entire Martech tech stack to the website to the positioning piece to you know, building up the lead gen engine to content marketing initiative, yeah, the email marketing setup, paid social, paid search. Yeah, yeah that's like a whole, so I have a case study for the whole project because when people come to me, they usually don't have enough experience or knowledge to attack a specific area. And also that's not what I'm known for. People can't bring, come to as an advisor and a strategist. They don't come to me because they need help on a specific niggly thing um, nowadays. I guess they used to when I was like a search expert because uh, you know, my career grew through performance marketing. I was first an SEO guy, then became a PC guy, then became a search marketing guy, and then became like a broader um, chief growth officer, which is kind of currently how, I'm, how I position myself in the market, kind of more holistic, more full funnel. So yeah, I mean, there is a case study available and I'm happy to send that through. Maybe you could send me the link and uh, get included in the show notes. Sure. I want to talk a little bit more about video, but you mentioning your career path, I want to drill down into that. For someone listening to this who is early on in their career, who wants to become a marketing leader, uh, CMO, VP of marketing, or maybe a consultancy side, how should they grow their career in such a way that they are exposed to different elements of marketing? Because as you say, a lot of people are specialists. So you start and maybe you're a social media marketing expert. How do you grow from that as a base to become more uh, knowledgeable about the broad spectrum of marketing? I think agencies are a better learning bed for this. Yeah. Because I think in agencies, there's more variety. And it's kind of, there's an irony, I think now, where if you want to diversify skills, you're better off working with a lot of small businesses. Yeah. But that's not where you're earning 
growth potential is. So effectively, if I ask someone, what do you really want? The answer isn't, I want to learn more different markets of marketing. What they really want is more security in terms of their career progression so they can always find work. They want to work less and make more money. They want to have interesting, challenging um, experiences at work by doing things that are interesting projects that they ideally believe in, that are value-driven. And, you know, people who are younger tend to want to be doing something that's more material and people who are a bit older and tend to be a bit more cynical. And then the last one is they want to work with people that they enjoy working with, uh, people who appreciate them, respect them, and hopefully they have a, a laugh on, with them on occasion. And then that's what I found most people want. Now, when you tend to be a specialist in a larger company, you tend to get more of those things. And when you tend to work with a lot of small businesses, you tend to get a lot more stress because it's very hard. They're more demanding. The resources are thinner. They don't have an established brand. And it's just like, you need to be a jack of all. And then it's very hard to deliver results when you're very diversified. So I think the ideal would be is you migrate from specialism to specialism rather than go downstream to smaller businesses to become more of a generalist. And I think it's better to skip specialization to specialization like I did. And you kind of just, I think there's two aspects. One of it is through engineering. And that's like understanding where the market is going. Like when I migrated to search, before I was doing search, I was broad skilled. I was like a a general manager in, in an agency and more like a bit of sales and a bit of product and a bit of design. I was doing a bit of everything. And then I, I just saw Google and I was like, wow, this company's growing in the lowering rate. I want to be on the dovetail of, of this business that I think is going to be huge. And I took a punt on Google and that's when I picked up SEO. So I, I purposely went in the direction of where I thought growth was going to be. This is like 2004, right? Yeah. At that time, people didn't even know what Google was. And then um, I was like, yeah, that was my direction. And then the second is opportunity because the reality is it's very hard for a marketeer to engineer their career path. And a lot of people pretend as if that's possible, but I don't know anyone in my network who's successfully done that. Very few have. Um, The reason for that is if you just come and say, I'm going to be the first who does this, the first question someone's going to ask is, can you show me an example of where you've done that before? And the answer is no. And the answer is, well, I'm not going to give you any money to do that. Right. So, So in reality, coming up with this theoretical plan for where you want to go is not how life happens. Life happens through... And the most, the most important thing is people want to hire experience because they want to mitigate risk because they want to make sure they're not burning through their money. The minute you understand that principle, what you need to figure out is how do I double down on my case studies and the proven experiences of how I deliver value to businesses? I actually had someone the other day and he came to me for advice, a junior marketeer, and he had an opportunity to move to another business and, and increase his, his salary by almost 20%. And I asked, what results did you get? And he showed me the results. And I said, you're still in the infancy of delivering value to the business. Why don't you give it another six months, get some fantastic results, and then move on? And I think he was too disgruntled or he felt too stifled in his growth. And then he decided to make the move anyway. And I think that I understand why he did that, but that's not the ideal. The ideal is you really want to be like a basketball player. And like the best basketball players in the world they're not the best because everyone thinks that they're great. It's because they just have the most amount of wins, right? Yeah. And like in a way, the business world is quite cold enough. You just need to have as many wins as possible. And that's what you really want to be doubling down and focusing on. So don't worry so much about your diversification and your skills. Really worry about what your network say about you. And if your network say, this person is really industrious, they're really passionate, 
and they're really knowledgeable and they're very experienced, then don't worry, you'll get all of those things. You'll build wealth, you'll build success, you'll build amazing relationships. And I'm saying this from experience. This is what I've done. I work like some hours. I work because I do whatever it takes. Like yesterday I was up to 1 a.m. because one of my providers who said he could do something couldn't do it. So I was up to 1 a.m. to try and deliver the promise that I made to the client right. because I'm liable to that promise, not my provider. So what are you willing to do to deliver the value that you promise? And that's really important. And focus more on your relationships. Focus more on the value you deliver in the work setting that you currently have and how you migrate and progressively develop. Less so about diversifying your skills because the truth is no one knows how to evaluate the skills that you have and the amount of skills that you have. Like we all have more knowledge and experience than any one person that we know understands about us. And we all have that in common. So problem is a lot of marketeers are like, but I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. And it's like, no one cares. They just want to know if you can do that one thing to help them get that one result. And you've got to double down and show how you can do that one thing and show how you get that one result. No one cares about these generalists. You've done a bit of everything because that's not, they don't see how that translates into effective ROI. So I really recommend being more commercial and more thinking a bit more like a CFO and thinking more like a CEO and thinking less like a CMO about your professional progression and career. Think about as a CMO, when you're thinking about marketing and your competence and your specialism as a skill, but in terms of your professional development and your wealth building, think more like a CEO and a CFO because they really understand how to drive business success and commerce. And that's where your your professional growth is going to come from, from understanding that language and speaking it fluently. That's great advice. I want to close out by thinking about the future. Where do you see the future of video going in marketing? Is it going to become embedded in everything or will it still continue to kind of just have a, a kind of special purpose in marketing? I think it will evolve with a sophistication in terms of how video can start to get personalized through prospects. And some businesses are already doing this and it's incredible. But just as an example, they can change the background of the city in the end based on the city that you're in. So the, the front end of the video is like preloaded, but the background changes for each audience according to where they are. And that level of personalization and sophistication will continue to evolve. So as we get more sophistication with audio and like scanning codes and sending backlinks, the video will be more interactive and richer. So I think we're really only seeing now the infancy of video. I think video will get both longer and will get shorter. So it will get shorter because people's attention spans are progressively shortening, but it will get longer for content that really adds exceptional value and is very deep on a specific topic and a really tight fit for that audience. So we're going to see both extremes. But effectively, it's more likely, if I had to bet on one of the two, that we'll go like blog content has gone over the last 10 years and it's getting longer form. Yeah. It's becoming more in-depth. And the amount of research and in-depth quality to produce better quality content has increasing. So it used to take like one or two hours and now it takes almost four or five or six hours. This is like some research from Orbit Media from Andy. And I think it's really interesting to think about the quality is increasing, the standard is increasing. And that's what's going to happen with video. The standards will increase, it will become more competitive, which means people start developing like more expensive studio equipment, start investing more heavily, will go moving away from shooting it on your iPhone to having a proper professional setup. So I think that's definitely the evolution and it will become more interactive and it will become more personalized and it will become multi-purpose. However, 
there will still be other mediums around because of the the inefficiency of of video. It's like you can't really jump and skip video in the same way you can jump and skip and scan written content. So the medium has quirks to its quality. You want a more immersive experience, a more personal experience. I think video is, is very rich, but it also has its limitations like visualizing graphs or making graphs interactive. Like you don't really see a lot of videos where you get to interact with a graph and zoom in and zoom out and have the video narrative overlaid on that. It's not really built for this. Like um, it's taking you on a journey through a story. And I think it's really a medium that's built for storytelling. So if you have a story, video is probably very good. If you have other types of information you want to explain, like if you wanted to um, explore data or give someone data to click and understand the relationships between data, that interactive infographic, the video is not the right format for that. So I think it's nuanced to its format that it will be will continue to grow and we're still in the infancy, but I don't think video is going to take over and all, all content is just going to be video. Like I don't think that's going to happen. Right. The barrier to entry for video has gone down, way down. When I started in my career a long time ago, we would spend tens of thousands of dollars to produce a video to get a professional uh, team in, to hire a studio, to go into an edit suite, and it was a lengthy process. I guess the one thing about having an iPhone that can shoot 4K video is the barrier to entry is lowered. doesn't necessarily mean the video is going to be better, right? It just means that there's been a shift in the cost. So now the shift in the cost that you were originally incurred, it's actually the same cost today as it was 10, 15 years ago. Where is the shift gone? So it still costs the same amount of money. Or and that doesn't make sense. Like I can get in an iPhone now. I don't need to buy a two thousand dollar camera to get the same result. Yes, in terms of the the visual output, but now you have to produce exceptional quality content in the research and the back before you produce the video, and then the editing and all of the props and the setting to cut through the noise because now everyone produces video. So really, you've just taken the cost of the cost of video production. Now you have a lot more content, but now to get a result, you need to cut through. So you have to shift that same cost to cut through. So in reality, it still costs the same. It's just where's the money shifted to in terms of the expense. Yeah, who's making the money? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's definitely YouTube and Google and Facebook. Uh, definitely with 66 to 70% of total digital media spend, they're definitely making the money. Yeah. Well, this is a fascinating view into video and marketing. I really appreciate you joining me, Oren. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Reed Edwards, executive producer, writer, and host of Confessions of a Marketer. Shep Salau is my producer, helping put together the shows every week. Annalyn Timball is my assistant, and she helps with guest relations and getting everything scheduled just right. Thanks, Sheb and Annalyn. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. Stay healthy, and see you next time.